Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter and the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So Sarah, I hope you've been enjoying the sunshine. At least the rising temperatures mean we can turn down the dial of worries about heating our homes for now. But you know who I feel sorry for in this weather? It is our furry friends. It's not like they can discard a layer of insulation. No, absolutely. I mean, we've been taking our dog down to the river for a swim instead, which he absolutely loves. But now our house does rather smell of wet dog, I'm afraid. I think that's why we seem to have had a a flurry of hamster escapes in this part of the world, seeking some cold relief deep in the crevices of houses. My friend accidentally hoovered up her hamster after it popped out from a hole in the wall. Yeah, after having fled its cage for colder climbs. Thankfully, it escaped with just a grazed nose, but it then went on the run again. And uh, I think she's now regretting spending a small fortune on the cage, bedding and toys and a hamster run when all it wants to be is free range. Well, it is always hard to resist spending money on a pet when it's become like a well-loved member of the family. So, I, I mean, I can't have been the only one who was eyeing up things like cooling mats and freezable toys just as soon as it started getting hot. Of course, there's even more of us with pets now as demand kind of rocketed for them during lockdowns. So there's actually a lot of money being spent on everything from food to things like pet fashions. It begs the question of exactly what we'll do now. Now our budgets are so much tighter and whether we'll still consider this to be man's best spend. Oh, sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> In an episode we're calling From Wags to Riches. OK, you are on a roll with puns today. I am not a pet owner myself right now, and I am in the minority, I know, but a collision between a fox and our roam-free rabbit has left too many scars, I'm afraid. Anyway, in this podcast, we will be finding out if this surge in pets and all the accessories and services which come with them is set to continue, or as we head back to the office a bit more, we might be a bit more reluctant to welcome new additions to the household and margins may be hit on pet food and products from all those inflationary pressures. Well, to get a bird's eye view of this, we'll be talking to Richard Lambert, who's finance director at Dragonfly Products. So hi, Richard. I imagine pet purchases have been booming. So what are your best sellers at the moment? Booming, yes, would be the right word. Best sellers, I would say, are natural treats, own brands of dog food that we run our own brand, harnesses, leads. There's a whole spectrum of things out there that are selling really, really well in the current climate of the boom that has taken place with inside the dog industry and the canine industry as a whole due to the pandemic. Richard, looking forward to getting a lot more detail coming up from you. We're also going to be chatting to Sophie Lund-Yates, who can give us the lowdown on some of the businesses in the sector, including Pets at Home and pet food manufacturer Nestle. She'll be exploring whether the industry will still look like it's the cat which has got the cream, or if it could all end up looking a bit more like a dog's dinner. Great to be back again. Um, hopefully nothing's going to be quite looking like a dog's dinner, but um, we'll have to see what I have to say a bit later on. Plus, we'll catch up with Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research, who's been speaking to Dan Green, co-manager, Franklin Templeton UK Midcap Fund. And we will, of course, have the quiz. And we're talking, of course, all things pet-related, which means, Sarah, if you have a dog, surely you'll be wagging your tail by the end of the show. Oh, I don't know. I'll probably be in the doghouse again. But, you know, as long as there are questions on the appetites of greedy spaniels, then I'm completely covered. Well, before we start looking at the pulling power of pets, let's get a wider snapshot of the environment that these companies are operating in right now. And with inflation soaring and recession looming, 
it's certainly not perfect conditions for any retailer. Yeah, so the Bank of England's been raising the base interest rate, so it rose again to 1.25% in June. And as we record this, markets think that rates are more likely than not now to rise 0.5 percentage points in August. And that's a level we haven't seen in more than 13 years. Now, the idea is as rates move higher, people won't want to borrow so much. So demand for goods is going to fall, which will help bring prices down. Inflation risks being a slow poison for the economy, so the Bank of England is trying to take an antidote now by raising interest rates. It was thought it would only have to take a small dose at a time, but the last reading on the economy came in more positively than expected, with May's GDP data showing the economy expanded by 0.5%, rather than flatlining as expected. So now the chances of a steeper rate rise this summer are thought to have increased. However, it's still not expected to follow the prescription written by the US Federal Reserve of the more potent medicine of an even steeper rate hike due to fears a recession could follow. The US central bank hiked rates by 0.75% at the June meeting, more than it had initially planned given the worries of spiralling prices. And expectations have been growing that an even more aggressive policy will be pursued this summer by the Fed. And given what's happening in the US, there are worries that, given inflation in the UK is expected to soar to 11%, the Bank of England may be behind the curve in attempts to bring it down. Of course, if higher interest rates persuade people to tighten the purse strings, that's going to have a knock-on effect on retailers. And according to the British Retail Consortium, spending fell in June for the third consecutive month, and new homewares fell off shopping lists as people concentrated on what they need, not just what they want. There's also evidence people are trading down to cheaper brands in an attempt to stop the price of goods in the weekly shop from spiralling. So going back to our main focus on the podcast today, the pulling power of pets, what will this mean for the industry if shoppers become more cautious? Well, the good news is that pet ownership has soared in recent years. So according to the Pet Food Manufacturers Association, over 4.7 million people got a pet during the pandemic. It means there are now a record 35 million furry, feathery and scaly additions to the UK homes, including 12 million cats and marginally more dogs. So it means that almost two thirds of us now own a pet. Yes, and spending on pet food and pet-related products and services has been estimated at $6.3 billion, with around two-fifths on food, two-fifths on vets, and the rest split between grooming and accessories. Now, this means the pet sector is worth twice as much as the baby and toddler category. And, of course, people spend longer in the sector because our pets never grow up. It's not just that the number of pets is rising. The industry notes that we're also increasingly concerned about nutrition and are willing to spend more on high-quality diets. We're also interested in the appearance of our pets, so we'll spend on grooming and we want the best for them, so we're prepared to splash out on accessories too. But while every part of the market is growing, it's spending on vets, which is rising fastest. Now, part of this is developments in veterinary science and the resulting medical inflation, which means more treatments are available at a higher cost. Those CAT scans don't come cheap, and part is also the expansion of pet insurance. Still fewer than half of pet owners have pet insurance, but those who picked up a pet during the pandemic were more likely to have bought it. Just over half of them did, and dog owners were particularly likely to do so. Now, all this should continue to be a tailwind for the industry, but there are still plenty of potential pressures ahead. Yes, the squeeze on our incomes is affecting every area of our finances and those areas which people consider to be luxuries and are under particular pressure. Of course, once you've welcomed a pet to your home, it often stops being a luxury and becomes a member of the family that you'd never consider giving up. Although a worrying 3.4 million people gave up their pet in the past year. 
what's more likely is that we start cutting back on some of the nice-to-haves for our pets. So whether that's ditching fresh food for dried or buying it in bulk or thinking twice about expensive pet insurance premiums, everything is under consideration. And what's particularly interesting was a study a few years ago that showed people were about as likely to cut back on spending on themselves as they were to spend less on their pets. So interesting. So what does all of this mean for the industry? Well, with us, we have Richard Lambert, Finance Director at Dragonfly Products. So Richard, really great to have you on the programme. Tell us a little bit more about your business. Where are you based and what kind of products are you finding particularly popular uh, right now? You mentioned a few of them earlier, but are there any particular trends? We're based in uh, Huddersfield in West Yorkshire and uh, we're a fairly new business. So we've gone through a period of quite rapid growth and now we're beginning to have uh, a small pinch on people's income. We're certainly starting to see a few trends occurring. People are very, very happy to continue spending on high quality products. So, for instance, a very high quality dry food or a wet food or a raw food People are not stopping paying for that right now. They are more than happy to buy a high quality product because they realise that if they buy a, a poor quality, for instance, dry food, A, obviously the nutritional value to their pet isn't great. It may be full of nasties and fillers like uh, meat meal and derivative and things like this. But also, when you really get down to the nitty-gritty of the cost, when you look at a, a poor quality food and cost per kilo, where you actually end up using more of it per day versus a higher quality food, where you'll actually feed less per meal, actually the cost saving is not that great by going for a poorer quality food. And I think that tied to the fact that people are very much more nutritionally aware anyway um, about what they feed themselves and also their pet is, is leading people into still being very happy to spend money on a good quality food other little trends that we're seeing i would say that people are changing their habits a little bit with regards to maybe treats some people are looking for longer lasting treats rather than things that may last uh, not so long from a personal point of view in our store when it comes to accessories people are really happy to spend money on a on a good quality brand when it comes to say a harness or something like that which may not be a cheap product it might be 50 60 pounds for a harness but people are more than happy to do that because it's a quality product backed by a very good uh, guarantee or warranty whereas that middle ground people are sort of shying away from. And once they make their mind up that they're not happy to buy the expensive item, they're dropping right down to something that's actually quite a cheap product. There is still lots of people out there who are more than happy to spend because, as you've already said, once they've welcomed that pet into their home, it's not so much seen as an expense after a short period of time. It's just something that has to be paid for on a weekly basis. Do you think there's a link, Richard, between the cost of the actual pets to buy them in the first place and how much people are prepared to spend on these accessories? Yes, definitely. I know from my own experience, we have two dogs at home. The breeds that we have literally doubled in price during the pandemic. We're talking about people paying maybe £2,000, £2,500 for a dog. If you're going to spend that kind of money, you're not going to be wanting to feed poor quality food, poor quality treats... We've all seen things like spates of thefts and things like that of dogs. So people are then thinking, well, I'll, I'll have a, a harness that's really secure. I don't want my dog uh, being taken. And then it leads into the whole insurance thing and insuring your dog. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's just like us, isn't it? If we, if we spend good money on ourselves on something, we want to look after it, no matter what that may be. And you're certainly going to do that with your dog. 
One of the things that sort of come across from the whole of the retail sector really is that the costs are rising in terms of your purchasing. Are you having to change the way that you source products? We've gone through a period of change this last two years, I would say, on probably 20 to 30 percent of our products. We deal with a number of suppliers who we, we very much value our relationships with and we understand that the cost of raw materials has gone up with some of our products in the food sector. We have certainly changed the way that we buy from some of our suppliers when it comes for things like training treats and chews and things like this, where if there's been a bulk purchase offer on, we've certainly tried to take advantage of that to try and maintain our wholesale prices that we're purchasing at because we don't want to get into this pattern of where we're constantly raising prices. We try to obviously offer the best value we can do, but certain products have had rises and we have had to pass those on to the consumer. But when you're searching for products and you're searching for suppliers, it's not just the price of the product that you've got to take into account. The cost of a container from Europe is now almost three times more expensive than it was last January. Even if you can source the product at a good price, all of the shipping and everything else has has also risen as well as the actual product itself. So very challenging. And is it changing uh, the ranges that you stock? I suppose you've also got to take into account this changing taste, as you mentioned, this demand for more of the luxury ranges as well. Just like humans, dogs are so, so, so fickle in either what each dog likes or different breeds having perhaps allergies to certain uh, proteins. So we offer still a very, 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 very large spectrum of items. You have a sort of manufacturing side of your business as well. So how have you dealt with rising costs in that side of things? It's difficult. I'm not the only employer in the UK who's seen a large increase to their uh, wage bill uh, in the last period of a year to 18 months. We're also seeing national insurance hikes. We, we run freezers 24 hours a day, seven days a week for storing of raw dog food, which has to remain frozen all the time, which our electricity bill is now 40% higher. We've gone through similar issues. Obviously, we all saw the issues that happened around the financial crisis in 2008-2009. We're going to pass on costs where we really desperately have to. But if we don't have to, we're prepared to ride these things out uh, and to allow things to get back more onto an even keel, which may take a year, 18 months. We may continue to still turn good numbers over, but it can have an effect on your profit margins. Yes, we just have to see what happens. But in the meantime, interesting that you say that pets are so fickle. Do you think that we've really seen this growth of the humanisation of pets? And do you think this will provide a bit of a tailwind? People are still going out and buying dogs. I don't see a drop in the number of dogs in the UK. I think it's going to continue and continue and continue. But the care that they're being offered is just a better quality because people are more aware. And I think there's much more good knowledge and advice out there, whether it be through blogs or forums or whatever it is on the Internet. And people want to do their best by their animal. As much as I see a small bump in the road at the moment, it's going to continue to be a strong sector because it's not about wants. It's about needs. You need to feed your animal. You need to have it groomed. You need to take it to the vets. It needs to have its booster injections. In terms of sort of some of the changes that happened during the pandemic, obviously we saw lots of growth in things like buying things online and and sort of out of town kind of shopping. Are those the sorts of things that affect pet sales as well? Or is is it something about the experience of coming to a pet shop that's different? Well, we're a multi-channel retailer, so we have a bricks and mortar store. Um, we have a sort of uh, a warehouse bricks and mortar store where, where we do some of our production. We also have 
uh, a large presence online with our own website and with Amazon. And they've all seen large growth during the pandemic when everybody decided now was the time to take the plunge and get their first dog or other dogs. There are people who once they've purchased online and had a good experience online, they will happily shop that way. Whereas you are going to have those people who really want to come in store and, and like that interaction. They like to come and meet us. They like to come and have spend some time and have get some advice on, on how they're feeding maybe or different things that they can try in their dog's diet or, or behavioural issues or all these different things. Whereas you have customers, for instance, our Amazon customers who just want to go on their mobile phone, buy a product, um, and then they're not bothered uh, the fact that they don't get to talk to anybody about it. So being multi-channel, um, there's different patterns. So our customer base in our store, it's the same people week in, week out. Internet, not quite as much. You might have a larger customer base and they'll buy slightly less often. And then something a little bit faceless like Amazon, where someone might buy from you twice a year. So there's lots of variation in the way that people buy in whatever channel they come to buy from you. Do you think this means that it's even more important that you have your own a USP that you can offer something that perhaps the Amazons of this world don't? I think that's a definite thing. What I would say from our point of view is that I suppose we developed a USP based on, on Amazon um, because we solely retailed on Amazon at the start and we became aware that our customers bought from Amazon because A, the delivery was nice and fast, B, their customer service is absolutely superb. So we kind of took that when we started retailing online and, and then opened a little bricks and mortar store that, you know what, we're going to have a USP that is absolutely superb, nice, fast delivery. Uh, and then we're going to develop another USP that's going to be really, really, really high quality products. And then the next thing we're going to go for is we're going to offer absolutely amazing customer service in store when it comes to the point of view advice and knowledge. So really well-trained staff, staff who are happy to spend half an hour, 45 minutes in store with a customer, with with staff being your biggest expense with inside a business. A lot of um, retailers don't want a member of staff tied up for a period of time dealing with X, Y, or Z, in, in certainly in my experience in some stores I go in, but we're more than happy to do that. We'll work with you for your dog because we're not interested in just being salespeople because that dog's not with you for this week or this month, like buying a new dress or a pair of trainers that are worn out in six months or what have you. That dog's going to be with you for six, eight, 10, 12 years. Um, and it's about forming a relationship with that customer and with that dog. And we completely and utterly adore all of our customers' pets when they bring them into store. And it's it's the best part of the day. And we want a relationship with them. And we just see people returning time after time after time. And hopefully it's because we've been able to create a USP. But part of it actually, yeah, is, is derived off the big thing that is Amazon that actually a number of people hate. But they do have some some a superb USP because we all know what their USP is and we have tried to copy it a little bit. Interesting to find out how you're trying to keep your customers' tails wagging as well as their pets themselves. So thank you so much, uh, Richard. It's been really fascinating to hear all about uh, your business. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Clearly, the UK's reputation as a pet-loving nation is keeping the industry really busy even now. So it's time to bring in Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead 
Equity Analyst here at Harvey's Lansdowne. And Sophie, you've been looking at some of the listed companies operating in the sector. We can't not talk about pets at home, can we? This one doesn't need too much introduction. Um, It's the pet store chain with almost 460 shops throughout the UK. The pet boom during the pandemic meant pets did very well. Even as things were uncertain, all those new puppies and kittens needed their supplies. Um, Now, as these animals grow, they become long-term sources of repeating revenue. And that is something I know only too well, being one of the millions of people that got a pet during lockdown. Now, what's very interesting with Pets at Home is its hybrid approach. 41% of its omnichannel revenue involves input from a physical store colleague. So think of that in terms of things like click and collect or ordering something in store. Now, 57% of the group shops also have a vet practice or grooming salon. Offering services in this way is a really great way to encourage repeat custom and massively increases cross-selling. That's also true of Pets at Home's VIP club membership with its millions of users more likely to shop across more than one of the group's channels. You know, I, I can't knock momentum, but there are some things it's, it's quite prudent to mention. The group's valuation shows that the market has high hopes for the group, but that does also mean that there's more pressure to perform. And keeping up with the market's expectations, it is a tough ask at the moment. Pet spending is more resilient than other forms of spend. You know, we're going to keep feeding our dogs no matter what happens. But customers are more likely to rein in spending on on accessories and extras. Don't tell my dog. Um, I think it's likely that pets at home's margins are going to come under some pressure. And we talked about the importance of uh, the vet sector to the whole industry. So tell me a bit about CVS Group. Yes, from a pet superstore to a vet group. Um, CVS Group has over 500 veterinary practices across the UK, Ireland and the Netherlands, plus a handful of diagnostic laboratories and pet crematoria. They're supported by the rapidly growing Animed, um, which is an online veterinary pharmacy. And as we shift to a more kind of digital world, there's reason to think this division will only build scale and become more profitable. Offering services across you know, the broad spectrum of of pet needs helps CVS capture as much revenue from owners as possible. Um, Now, this does also feed into another point, similar to what I said about pets at home, which is that cats and dogs go to the vets more than once in their life, um, especially for all the warriors out there like me. Um, On a business level, that equates to reliable revenue, especially as all the lockdown animals age, um, which is a morbid way to look at things, but, but is true nonetheless. Now, CVS Group's valuation has reduced from the very frothy days of a few months ago. That means there's more breathing room from the market's perspective, um, although as ever, nothing's guaranteed. And finally, what's your take on Nestle? So Nestle is known for making Kit Kats and coffee. So our listeners are probably wondering why I'm talking about it on a Pets episode. The reality is that Nestle is responsible for Purina Pet Care, whose products saw revenue rise by double digits last year. Now, what I think is interesting and a potential kind of growth lever of the longer term um, is the rising success of the group's scientific and vet products. As the world becomes more pet obsessed and all these new millennial owners continue to humanise their furry friends, spending more on specialist food is a trend that should progress. Of course, in the immediate term, particularly with inflation biting, this may not play out fully. The larger contributor perhaps unsurprisingly, to to Nestle's organic growth, tends to be its coffee products. Um, It looks after Starbucks at home drinks too. Um, But as an option that offers exposure to the booming pet trade while offering other goods, um, Nestle is an interesting one. Um, I also now really want a Kit Kat. 
So uh, I'll leave it there and go and grab one. Thanks very much, Sophie. So it does look as though demand is holding up, at least in some areas. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. But now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she's been talking to Dan Green, co-manager of Franklin Templeton UK Midcap Fund. Hi, Dan. Hi, Emma. So I'm going to kick off with a really important question. Is spending money on your pets discretionary or staple when it comes to how you might think about a stock? <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, really interesting question. We own pets at home within the mid-cap fund, and I think quite a lot of pet owners wouldn't see it as, as discretionary. When you look at pets at home as a business, a third of their earnings come from the vet's side, so that can be argued that that's not discretionary. If your pet needs to go to a vet... You take them to the vet. And then on the retail side, over 50% of its sales are food, again, non-discretionary, but also as well other consumables, about 25%, whether that's hay for your rabbits or litter for your cats, so other things that you, you need to keep replacing. So 25% of what they sell are accessories. So these can be described as a bit bit more discretionary. But I think what we've seen in this trend over the past couple of decades is the humanisation of pets and people willing to spend more and more on, on their pets. So whether or not that's a luxury dog basket or making sure they've got the, the latest toy. People may pull back a bit on this area, but in the main, spending on pets, I would say, is pretty non-discretionary. And the reason I ask is because I think most forecasters are in agreement that next year growth, economic growth, is going to be muted at best. Many are pricing in a recession. So when it comes to stock selection, either as an individual investor or indeed a professional investor like you, are you thinking about where people are going to be spending their money, not just on their pets, but in general, the stuff that gets cut when money is tight is probably going to get cut in the next 18 months, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the consumer is facing a really challenging time and no wonder you're seeing consumer confidence at you know, lower, lowest levels we've seen since 2008, since the financial crisis. We're looking at companies that probably are more resilient, even though they're kind of classed as consumer discretionary. And so we've got a couple of stocks in the portfolio, the likes of Games Workshop, which is a global leader in, in tabletop gaming, sort of the hobby market. And going back you know, as an investor, you try to look back at history and sort of the quote attributed to Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So we as a team are looking at what happened during the last recession, what happened during 2008, 2009, where did spending get cut? Where was it a little bit more resilient? Hobbies generally are more resilient, not completely immune. Sales for Games Workshop did hold up in the, uh, in the financial crisis. It was a small, much smaller business at the time. But for those that love playing Warhammer or just collecting the figurines, and they're quite fanatical about it. So I think the kind of the low ticket purchases like this will, will continue. We've also got watches of Switzerland in there. So at the higher ends, likes of Rolex or Patek Philippe. This consumer is probably a bit more protected from you know, utility cost, cost increases, from other, other rises. And also as well, the supply demand dynamics within the luxury watch market mean that many of these have got a waiting list for many years. So while we're looking at these consumer discretionary stocks, I think you can't make a generalisation. What about the stuff that, that does get cut back? And I'm not just thinking about products themselves, but also sort of services. It's obviously been a very difficult couple of years for leisure and entertainment industry. 
you know, is this going to be another difficult couple of years for a slightly different reason, recession rather than pandemic this time? But what does it mean for things like pubs, restaurants, cinemas? I think there's a bit of a pent-up demand that we've had since the pandemic. People wanting to go out, people wanting to spend on leisure activities, people wanting to spend on holidays. So it has held up pretty well so far. But it's a bit of a mixed picture. So you look at the likes of Weatherspoons, which are seeing their sales, haven't quite got back to pre-pandemic levels. But then a more premium offering like Young's is seeing sales sort of 20% above. So again, different areas for the consumer, probably different demographics that they're sort of appealing to in terms of their in terms of their customer base. You've seen recently that Netflix reported in terms of their subscriber numbers going down. So people probably looking at their outgoings at the moment and thinking, maybe I've got one or two subscription services that I don't need anymore and starting to cut costs there. Deliveroo also reported that their growth was down, people cutting back on delivery of, of, of takeaways. We are seeing people people cut back. But again, parts of the consumer, the top deciles will have a lot of excess savings that they've built over the pandemic, which may be able to cushion some of the decrease that they have in discretionary spending over the next couple of years. And there's definitely the demand out there. They, people want to go out, people want to go to restaurants, people want to go to the cinema, um, and there's that pent-up demand. So hopefully that will see them through. But there are clear areas people on lower incomes will be feeling this uh, a lot harder than those consumers at the top end. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that was Emma Waller, Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdowne, talking to Dan Green, co-manager of the Franklin Templeton UK Midcap Fund. And that interview was recorded on the 20th of July, 2022. And please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. Now, though, it's time for the quiz. And Sarah, your dog has been surprisingly quiet so far. So perhaps talk of walkies will perk her up. Oh, blimey, don't mention the W word. She's a Spaniel, so she actually does know what that word means. So we can't even spell it out anymore because she now recognises that it means exactly the same thing. It's always tough when you're outwitted by your own pet. Okay, (laughs) Sarah, my first question is, how far does the average dog walker walk their pets in a year? Is it 500 miles, 750 miles or 1,000 miles? That definitely depends on the dog. So Matty, who's my dog, she comes back from a massive walk and she's just ready to go again. But I do know a bulldog who doesn't like to go beyond the end of his garden. Um, I'm going to go down the middle and say 750 miles. You are right. Uh, It is Roughly the equivalent of the distance from Plymouth to John O'Groats. That's according to a survey by the Ordnance Survey. And it's found that on average in Britain, dogs are taken out for a walk six times a week with each trip lasting about 48 minutes. So there we go. Now, we talked about the number of dogs and cats we own earlier on in the podcast. But what about rabbits? How many pet rabbits do you think there are in UK homes? Is it... 500,000, 1 million, or 5 million? (laughs) Well, I suppose the one thing we all know about rabbits is that they breed like rabbits. (laughs) So I'm going to go for the top one, 5 million. No, it's actually 1.1 million. That's according to Pet Keen. Another 330,000 rabbits were acquired over the past two years. And now 2% of UK adults own a rabbit. And in the US as well, they're the third most popular pet after dogs 
and cats. But the average cost of a pet rabbit also increased during the pandemic and lockdowns by around 17%. So it'll set you back on average 50 quid. But if you take into account all the supplies, a pet rabbit could potentially cost you in excess of £1,000 annually. That's according to the Vet Times. So nothing's cheap, is it? Okay, moving on to pet foods. Now, I know plenty of pampered pets who are spoilt, rotten and treated with grilled fish and prawns. But as we know, tinned and pouch pet food is a huge business. But I want you to tell me, when was the first commercial cat food sold here in the UK? Was it in 1800, in 1860 or in 1930? I haven't a clue. Um... Do you know, I have a vague notion that Victorian cats largely ate mice, but that just might mean I've read too many children's stories. Um, But it can't be that early, so I'll go for 1930. No, it was earlier than that. The first commercial cat food was sold in London from 1860 by the American entrepreneur... James Spratt. His Spratt's patent cat food was filled, according to the company's many advertisements, with nourishing meat fibrine sourced from North American buffalo. Now, that disrupted the pet food industry, which at that time was dominated by so-called cat's meat men, who wandered the streets of London selling door-to-door. And there were a thousand cat meat sellers in London in 1861, serving around 300,000 cats. They sold mostly horse meat, and these sellers remained quite a common sight in London into the 20th century, both street hawkers and those better-off vendors who could open their own shops. So there we are, pet food, the great disruptor. OK, we'll finish with royal pet, Sarah. Over the years, the Queen has been well-known for having corgis. But which of these odd facts about the dogs is true? Do they each have their own butler... Did they have their meals prepared by a chef? Or did the Queen even take a corgi on her honeymoon with her? <laughs> well, I think all dog owners are a bit bonkers about their dog. So if I had the money the Queen has, I can imagine considering all of those perfectly reasonable things to do. Uh, but do they, do they have their own chef? You're right in a way. It was all of them. And as a non-dog owner, they sound completely ridiculous. So I had to put them in. I don't know. I think you wait. I think we'll come back next time and you'll have adopted a bunch of corgis. I can't see it, but you never know. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 22nd of July 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. Past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment and no view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own views on any proposed investments. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is me to thank our guests, Richard, Dan, Sophie, Emma, and our producer, Elizabeth Hotson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>